I was a teenage fundamentalist. Troy, how are you? I'm very good. Gee, I love the resonance in your voice. And it's also right now is morning voice because it's it's early in the morning. Well, not early, but it's a Saturday morning. I've got up earlier to do the recording. I've only just had my coffee. So it, it does, the resonance goes as the day goes on. Yeah, but still, it sounds awesome. It's very sexy. Oh, that's what I'm aiming for. Call me, 1902. What, remember in the 80s, 0055. I do remember that. And I remember when I was a teenager, I think it was just before I was a teenage fundamentalist, I thought I'm going to call the one of these 0055. And for our in, international listeners, generally they were sex lines and they were like $3 a minute or something like that back then. I thought I'm going to call one and, and just see what they sound like. And it was really corny. It was so incredibly corny. And I listened for about two minutes and I went, this is ridiculous. And I hung it up. Anyway, the phone bill came because back then the phone bill would come in the mail. And I remember my dad going, who has called this number? And actually, no, I was definitely a teenage fundamentalist. I must have been 17 because one of my brothers is going, if you have called this number, you are going to have to repent. If, if that's, And I said, no, it wasn't me. I just lied about it and <laughs> completely shamed by it. He's like, that, that, that is wrong. And I thought, if you listen to it, you wouldn't think it was wrong. It was just like listening to a, a carry-on. I, I did the same thing at about that age, and it was just, I was so disappointed. Like, it wasn't explicit at all. It was like, do you want to put some sunscreen on me and and all this kind of stuff? And it was like, no, take your top off. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was double entendres all the way through as well. It was just like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. It must have been, there must have been some sort of guidelines or stuff. They mustn't have been able to be explicit, you know, especially if they're advertising and 17-year-old kids can ring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is obviously pre-internet, so restrictions on things were actually able to be monitored, unlike today. Unlike today. Hey, so speaking of 0055 sex numbers, our episode today is all about D-I-V-O-C-E. Yes, and unfortunately, we couldn't get Tammy Wynette to join us today to talk about it, although we could, we could have a seance, Troy, and and get Tammy to to speak about it. But divorce is definitely something that it's taboo in many, not not just Christian circles, but I think many religions, but also broader society. It's starting to change, and it has started to change over the last few decades. But for a very long time, divorce has been something that is just completely wrong. For sure. I mean, even the hoodoo gurus sing D-I-V-O-C-E can be so hurtful. Makes public property of everything personal. <laughs> For, again, our international listeners, the hoodoo gurus, a fantastic Australian band. A little bit quirky, but um, a hell of a lot of fun. They're a fun band. You know, fun fact, they made it into the American college charts in the 1980s. So anyone that's older and was into sort of alternative sounds in the 80s may in fact know of the Hoodoo Gurus in the USA, Brian. Dave Faulkner, who is the lead singer of the Hoodoo Gurus, I was at a a local gig not far from home, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, and we're watching, you know, a fairly... I know, fairly mainstream band, and I turn around. Here's Dave Faulkner in the audience with me, just standing there with beer in hand, watching it. And being Australia, Australians generally don't go up and mob people, um, famous people when they're in a crowd. We just try and act really cool, and that's what everyone did. They just act, acted really cool. And went, there's Dave Faulkner next to me. Awesome. That would have been great. It was good fun. I probably would have said hi to him at least. But then again, I lived in America. <laughs> <laughs> you would have. You would have. No. Uh, it was good fun. Good fun night. Anyway, enough music trivia for our, our listeners. Back to divorce. Yeah, back to divorce. Back to divorce, to the happy times. Divorce is something that both you and I have experienced. So we definitely speak with a level of experience and authority in terms of, of how it happens and some of the hurt and some of the the difficulties with it, but we want to approach it from a bit of a biblical perspective as well today. Yeah, definitely. I thought maybe we should put a couple of trigger warnings up that we are actually going to read verses from the Bible today, and we're going to talk about some pretty heavy topics. 
you know, we we may get into talking a little bit about sexual abuse and and domestic abuse and things like that. So trigger warning up front that this isn't going to necessarily always be light, but we'll see. So without further ado, let's launch into this happy topic. Yeah, God hates divorce, doesn't he? Apparently. But we don't. No, no, we don't at all. So, hey, first one that comes to mind, and you've probably heard this a million times, is Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That was something that was uh, used a lot in our fundamentalist days, wasn't it? And And quite often it was used to... I think there was a bit of a control mechanism in that as well. You you had the head of the house being the man and you were one flesh. So you as head, now one flesh, you got to direct the show. That's right. And also remember all that soul tie stuff as well, that you become one flesh with the with the woman and therefore, or, or, you know, with the man, and then therefore the demons could jump across, etc. And I used to wonder about that, that what that meant for gay sex, because isn't that unnatural and they don't actually become one flesh? So I was like, so how did demons jump across in gay sex? Because that's supposedly unnatural and not one flesh, so they wouldn't be able to do it. So I thought that's actually a bit of a hole in in that one, excuse the pun. You you were thinking that back then, back in the day, were you? Yeah, because it didn't make logical sense. Because I often think about gay sex and demons. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. It's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I remember at Bible college, a friend who was with, with me in class at the time, she had a history. So she didn't come into Christianity a virgin, uh, far from it. And I remember one of our Bible college lecturers one day saying, sure, we've got we've got marriage in the sense that we go up and we have people witnessing our marriage ceremony, and that's the official thing. But realistically, what the Bible says is that when you have sex, you become one flesh, and therefore it is a marriage commitment. So those people that you have had sex with, you are married to essentially, in the eyes of God. And she freaked out because she's like, I have had dozens of partners before I became a Christian. And she she almost left Bible college because of it and had to go and speak to the pastor who basically talked her down off the cliff and said, no, 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 that's, it's got, it's got it wrong. And the Bible college lecturer was someone who we all respected enormously and it became a bit of a, a tension there on in. So it's an interesting one. Yeah, well, he's obviously quite a literalist and, and fair enough too. That's that's the world that we lived in. So the point of all this is that it's very serious. And when these two people come together in marriage, they become one flesh. And whatever the hell that meant, it meant something quite serious. And so when you divorced, the idea was that there was a tearing of that one flesh. And so... I think Jesus actually mentions that, doesn't it? Doesn't he? In Matthew 19, he says something along the lines of, for this reason will a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He quotes that, and he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That was something often read at weddings, wasn't it? I, I would it hear that. Yep, and it usually preceded the old Corinthians reading. So you would have that bang, let let no man come between this, and then it would talk about what the expression of love is. It was it was a bit of a formula. It was almost like a Pentecostal service in, in many ways. Oh, totally was, totally was. So Jesus says earlier in Matthew 5, he says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, really important to note there, this is where I got hung up for the longest time, makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then later on in Matthew 19, he says that anyone, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So it's not just the woman that commits adultery, it's also the man who connects with that woman also commits adultery as well. But it, it's interesting, isn't it, that it seems to be about the woman more so than the man. 
I don't think it quite lets the man off the hook, but it still does seem to be about the woman. And then in Mark 10, uh, the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Luke 16, 18, anyone who divorce, divorces his divorces, divorces like Bugs Bunny, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Mm. What I wonder there is, what about the divorced man who marries an unmarried woman? Does she commit adultery? Uh, Romans, Paul gets in on the act. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband for as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and that, that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Again, there's nothing about the man as such. Having done it, it's more about the woman and the man who does it with the woman. So it seems to be very much about the woman. 1 Corinthians 7 says, But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. 1 Corinthians 7 also says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry someone as she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So on and on and on. So there's a whole heap of Old Testament verses, a whole heap of New Testament verses, but the point we're making there is both Paul and Jesus seem to say that except for sexual immorality, there's no out. So in summary, Christianity is as patriarchal as fuck and the man owns the woman essentially and she cannot be released from that contract of marriage until he dies. Yeah, well, that's right. The other thing is I'm sure that if we really looked, maybe the man doesn't quite get off the hook as easy, but I don't know, man, on first reading, it seems to say, it seems to be more about controlling the woman than it is so much about the man, unless the man is going after someone else's divorced woman. So, yeah. But look, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So when I became a progressive Christian, I sort of hung on to the fact that, look, Christianity, it's, uh, it's a little bit dodgy, but Jesus as a person, he's socially progressive. Oh, yeah. He's a, he's a hippie, lefty, commie, pinko. He is, until you get to this stuff. Because Jesus, he appears to hate divorce just as much as anyone else. Oh, yeah. And Paul uses, you know, all of those horrendous statements that he makes all through his writings about basically controlling women as well. So he's, he's an ass, but Jesus comes off as a bit of an ass here as well. Yeah, well, I... I never really read that and thought it was just for the woman. I think I just by implication thought it's for both sexes. And so I thought that's it. There is no there is no divorce. And obviously even as a Christian it was problematic because what about abuse and violence? Does the woman have to stay? What about financial abuse or neglect? of either partner. You know, what if one partner has a, a gambling problem and keeps spending all the money or whatever? What about psychological abuse? Now, that can be just as true as women as it can be for men in terms of being the abuser. What about if one partner is mentally ill and, you know, just, just go and, excuse me, I was about to say going crazy, but maybe I shouldn't say that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, what, what do you do with that? So those are quite extreme ones, but there's no out. And I guess I used to think, yeah, it was okay, you could leave, but too bad your number's up, you can never remarry. So sure, Jesus was good, you can get away and you can leave and not be in that relationship, but you can't repartner and you can never find love again. And I always thought that's really not fair. My memory of church fundamentalist experience, but also in the latter years of, of my faith, is littered with divorced people and particularly divorced women who remain single because I, I found that a lot of divorced men got remarried relatively fast and my certainly my experience was that there was a lot of divorced women and several that I knew and I knew well 
that were really confused about what they could do next, what was permissible. But I think also they were seen as used goods a lot of the time. So they were seen as, oh, they've, they've been married, they've been divorced. They've been one flesh. Yeah, they've been one flesh. But that same lens was never applied to the men. Like the, the men generally got away with just moving on and getting remarried. And it didn't seem to be a problem as much. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't a problem because divorce was a problem. But it, it messed people up. Even in the progressive spaces that I played, divorce still wasn't something that was broadly accepted. It was something that someone was definitely tainted after they'd, they'd gone through a divorce. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. But I, I guess the point that I'm making here is what besides adultery from the lips of Jesus and Paul allows you to divorce? Absolutely nothing. So let's take it to the extreme and say that a woman is being abused or the husband is violent or either of them are in a psychologically manipulative relationship and they're being you know destroyed on a psychological level by the other partner. Too bad. So sad. But, uh, but I do wonder whether there is a, a cultural context to some of this, and, and not letting it off the hook at all. But it's really only been in the last couple of decades that we've started recognising different types of abuse, such as financial abuse, neglect, psychological abuse, as, as certainly as, as family violence. Because, you know, financial abuse was, hey, the guy's the head of the household. He controls the money. So whereas now we've got a definitely a different lens on that and say this is about control, it's about coercion. But but I wonder if back then it wasn't recognised. So Oh, of course it wasn't recognised. No, so I wonder because adultery, I mean, there are some readings that would say that the concept of adultery, and maybe I'm being a, a little bit, Cheeky here, but the concept of adultery is a bit of a catch-all concept for any sin, in inverted commas, that, that violates that marriage contract. Definitely, we'll come back and, and talk about that. But I guess what I'm trying to do at this point is just on a surface reading, which is really how we took it when we were there. I do find it difficult to get back into the fundamentalist headset. So thank you for bringing me back into a fundamentalist. It, it is a difficult place. Yeah, praise the Lord, no worries. I'll, I'll lay hands on you, shunda, shunda. <laughs> That's what I guess I'm trying to say here is that on the surface of it, there's no room for a no-fault divorce. And more than that, even some of these extreme things like financial abuse, physical abuse, psychological abuse, mental illness, there's, there's no out. So how did you feel when you were a fundamentalist and you would see Christians, whether it was me or whether it was yourself or whether it was other people, you'd see them divorce for some other reason. How did, how did you deal with that? I'm trying to sort of step back into that headset and make sure that I'm, I'm not commenting from my viewpoint today, but I don't think I was terribly judgy about divorce. I mean, I saw marriage when I stepped into it as a lifelong commitment. Divorce wasn't something that was ever on the table of course, like you don't go into a marriage with that thought. But knowing a lot of people who divorced, and I've got many, many siblings, and half of them have had divorced before that point or during my time as well. So I was surrounded by divorce is not really a uh, something that, that was taboo. But within churches, again, I, I don't think I was terribly judgy about it. I mean, I might have been judgmental in terms of going, oh, surely they could have worked that out. And if you've got Jesus in your life, you can work that shit out. But if people got divorced, I don't think I was terribly judgy. How about you? Well, both my parents came from divorced families. And this is, you know, they were children of the 1940s and 1950s. So this was not a normal thing, even by society standards. So that's where I had sort of come from in terms of seeing that in my own family, but not my own parents. I was as judgy as all shit. I totally was. I was like, nah, this isn't what you should do. And I can remember I was in South Australia once at a, at a conference, a youth homelessness conference when I was working for that charity and church. And I met this guy, Dave and I met this guy who was 
ex-AOG and he had divorced. And because of that, he'd pretty much had to go and join the Salvation Army as a church because within the AOG, he was kind of ostracized because his marriage had failed. And I can remember him talking to me and I totally judged him and he could see it. He could see that I was judging him because he actually said to me, oh, God's a bit bigger than you think he is, mate, you know, kind of thing. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I was just like, no, sorry. There was was no reason. Like you said there, if you've got Jesus in your heart, you could have worked through it. I took it to a more, more of a degree than that and said, damn right, if you've got Jesus in your heart, you should work through it. So I didn't think there was any reason for divorce and I judged the living shit out of people, which is kind of funny on a karma level <laughs> later on, right? But yeah, for sure. I think I I think I judged the shit out of myself when I got divorced, which you know, I'll talk about later, but I think that was something I had to work through and it took me a little bit of time to to forgive myself. I stuck out at my marriage and I've said this before. I was not always a great husband. I was not someone who was incredibly supportive. I was someone who went into self-protection mode when things got tough. And it was a really difficult time, I think, for me towards the end of our marriage. And and when I say the end, I mean about the last five years. So a significant part of it because I felt stuck. I felt incredibly committed that I had to stay committed so it's not that I was necessarily thinking that divorce was an option either because it was just like you gotta stick it out and I don't for me I don't think that was just about my Christian experience I had watched my parents who'd been married since my mum was 16 when they got married she was very young and I had watched them through thick and thin stay together, but really not like each other. So there wasn't really a condition that you had to like each other. You just stuck it out. You just kept going. You did not actually give yourself a break in that. So that translated for me in sticking it out well beyond and and not being a great husband because I felt trapped. I felt like I couldn't leave or shouldn't leave. Also, there was an obligation And then I had to work through after I left, Uh, not after I left, sorry, my wife left, but after we split, I had to work through forgiving myself for all the shit that had gone on throughout our marriage and particularly those last few years where I, I really fucked up. I had to work through that and that did take a little time and, and there was a bit of self-flagellation through that as well. Yeah, it was difficult because I also had to pick apart what was the Christian legacy, what was the sociological legacy, and what was just general head fuckery, as we would like to say. Yeah. I think you were a lot more advanced in your deconstruction, even into progressive Christianity. And and for what it's worth, we've both done an episode on talking about our divorces, and so we'll we'll put those as links into into the show notes so people can actually hear our stories. But I wasn't at that point, Brian. I was still very much a fundamentalist in a lot of ways. And so when I was leaving my marriage, I didn't want to be dishonest with my interpretation of the the verses that we've just sort of looked at. I thought it was pretty clear. Jesus said, no, nah, that's it. And so in my mind, divorce for other than adultery was not allowed. And I was trapped in my marriage. But also, I was trapped in the theology as well. So I didn't even look at progressive ideas or other ideas about what divorce or what possibly Jesus meant about divorce or anything like that. I didn't even go there at all because I thought, no, nah, that's just me wanting to create a, an escape route for myself you know, to sort of excuse away. And I was trying to have more integrity. I mean, really, it's probably a kind of scrupulosity, which is what I think I I definitely suffered from. But there was no way out. I was trapped. Unlike you, I, I refused to look. Is there, in fact, other interpretations? And I think there's a lot of people like that and probably people listening now that are saying, oh, yeah, that's the way I saw it. And I had a friend of mine who I went to Bible college with who ended up leaving his wife as well. And he said to me, 
for a lot of men who want to leave, and it's probably true of women as well, but this is just what he said. He said, for a lot of men who want to leave, the only way they can leave their marriage is to leave the faith as well. And so they do. And they think, this is what I have to do. If, if I'm going to divorce, I'm betraying Jesus. And if I'm betraying Jesus consciously, I might as well walk away or I can't do that. So they, so they walk away from the faith. And I don't know if that's exactly the logic that I was employing, but it turned out that it is what happened. And so I think that these verses and this interpretation and this understanding, and this is not just modern fundamentalism, Brian. A lot of Christian churches, a lot of Christian groups, a lot of Christians throughout history have taken this hard line, right? And we can we can unpack some of those in a minute. But this was Jesus. And, and I think the red-letter Christians here have a hard time showing that lefty, hippie Jesus because this is a pretty fierce and staunch stance on divorce. Yeah, and obviously it has a... a- has a fairly significant effect on fundamentalist marriages when women do stay and and men but women largely are the recipients or victims of family violence and they leave, uh, they stay in these unhealthy marriages which really erode away their their sense of self and their sense of worth. So it has a lot to answer for as well because when it doesn't give people an out for any other reason but adultery, then I think that that causes an incredible amount of, of damage to people that to a certain degree is potentially irreparable. Agreed, agreed. What I thought we could do, there's a really good article on Wikipedia And as someone with postgraduate studies, I am not allergic to Wikipedia. I think Wikipedia can oftentimes have some absolutely brilliant stuff. So I want to recommend that and we'll throw it in the show notes. But I thought maybe you and I could go through some of these different views on divorce throughout church history and some of it older, some of it more modern, and and sort of talk about some of these and see the way that the church has seen it through throughout time and and I thought we could start with our good old Roman Catholic friends within the Roman Catholic Church marriage was not considered a sacrament until about the 9th or 10th century so it became even more full on for them about that time but although divorce as known today was generally allowed in western Europe after the 10th century the separation of husband and wife and the annulment of marriage were also well known So what is today referred to as separate maintenance or legal separation was common. So the husband and wife were physically separated uh, and they didn't live together, but their marriage relationship didn't fully terminate, right? And the courts had no power over marriage or divorce that was handled by the church. And so the thing that the church used to throw around was this idea of annulment. And you probably heard about that if you've done any watching of those Tudors and these kinds of shows, these sort of period dramas. So annulment was where they would actually say, oh, you were never really properly married anyway. And that's how they would sort of let people out. And so still to this day in the Catholic Church, the the idea of divorce is still frowned upon. But in 2016, Pope Francis published a, a statement which pertains to the reception of Holy Communion by the divorced and remarried who live together, but there's still been no updates as to, you know, exactly where they stand. But it seems to be implying that, yeah, you can take communion, but I think it'll still be a matter of priest by priest kind of thing. And how much of this do you think is social influences on the church in the modern day? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. Because they're going to lose people. So if they don't change, they're not going to get parishioners and they're not going to get people who are giving them offerings and tithes and bequeathing their estates and whatever. So they, they have to change. How much of it is actually biblically based? Did they just make that shit up? Oh, of course, of course. You know, times change and influence the church, and so it should. You know, I mean, we see that now in the Western church, even in modern evangelicalism with the acceptance of homosexuality. I mean, that was just unthought of even 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, fundamentalism also says... Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we shouldn't accept those things. 
if that is true. So how much is fundamentalism then bending who Jesus is? Yeah, and then the hardcore fundamentalists would say that those that are doing so are losing the faith, right? I mean, that's that's basically what what we see. So, and and I would have been in that camp, Brian. That's that's why I screwed myself over so badly on divorce because it was like, nah, you can't you can't budge on this. Jesus was pretty clear. So yeah, for sure. I say let the fuck faces eat each other. Yes, and I agree. See, I mean, that's what we're going to come to later. I don't want to get ahead too soon, but the idea of letting this Bible dictate to us and letting this ancient book dictate to us in a modern, you know, I mean, we are taking the position right now, Brian, of let's assume the Bible is true and Christianity is true, and neither of us believe that anyway. But it's just fun to sort of unpack it. But of course, man, it's all shite, right? I agree with you 100%. Yeah, sorry, I do get ahead of myself and get a little bit self-righteous with this stuff. I don't know that you get self-righteous, man. I think it's I think it's the way it is. Okay, so the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, I don't know about you, but they seem to be a little bit more gracious in my eyes, especially when you listen to Frank Schaefer and these other people that sort of become Eastern Orthodox after walking away from uh, evangelicalism. But the Eastern Orthodox Church does recognize that there are occasions where couples should separate and do, in fact, permit remarriage. Isn't that interesting? Had very dare they. Yeah. And it says here in the Wikipedia article, permitting remarriage is an act of compassion of the church towards sinful man. Wow. I know. That's that's grace. How how, how dare they? This is why they're not real Christians. Yeah. Well, and this is why a lot of ex-evangelicals run off and join the Eastern Orthodox Church. Hi, I'm Tracy. And I'm Sharon. And we are Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters. Huh, we've got less than 60 seconds. Sharon, go. Truthfully, Troy and Brian, you're the ones who deserve the credit or the blame for all of this. First, they got you, Tracy, to claim that Christian music megastar Keith Green was a cult leader. (laughs) Then they got you, Sharon, to talk about your pure virgin marriage personally arranged by Keith Green. (laughs) And now we are totally out of the closet, launching our own podcast, telling the world about the crazy Christian commune, Last Days Ministries. And most importantly, our decades-long escape from the trauma and abuse of extreme Christianity. So join us as we share our journey of healing and humor and how we found love and peace and joy on the other side. Wherever you get your podcasts, Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters. Hey guys, we'd love to hear from our audience. So if you'd like to connect with I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, then visit our website, IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com or find our link tree URL in the show notes. We also have a thriving community of listeners on Facebook who offer peer support and a shitload of funny memes and things of interest to former teenage fundies just like you. You can find us on Facebook or see the links in our show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. The Oriental Orthodox Churches are more severe than the Eastern Orthodox Church in terms of divorce and adopt an intermediate position between Rome and Constantinople, as if that's a thing, allowing it only in the case of adultery. So they're hardcore. So that's the Syriac Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, and Coptic Orthodox. Coptic always sounds like some sort of sex act to me. I think I think here copulate. Is Coptic like Egyptian? That is Egyptians, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. The pyramid-building Christians. Yes. Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the Anabaptists, such as Southeastern Mennonites, teach the indissolubility of marriage, which means there is no undoing of marriage at all for any reason. In the same vein, the Mennonite Christian Fellowship teach the sinfulness of remarriage following divorce, and the Biblical Mennonite Alliance hold that divorced and remarried persons are living in adultery and therefore in an ongoing state of sin that can only be truly forgiven when they separate. Wow, they just seem to get more and more hardcore. They do indeed. So the Lutheran churches, Martin Luther deplored divorce, right? He was totally against it. He taught that the innocent party in adultery and the innocent party in desertion were exceptions. So in other words, if 
the person that actually committed adultery or committed the abandonment, they're not allowed to remarry, but the, the person who was, you know, had that committed against them, they can. And let's keep that one in mind because we saw a lot of that in the AOG. The desertion? No, the idea that whoever didn't do the sin can remarry. We absolutely did. That that was a biggie. And they also didn't know what to do with those that did the sin. So if they stayed, they became an outcast or they most of the time they just left. Yeah, and, and it creates a problem because now that the other partner has connected with someone else, isn't the sinning partner now free because that whole marriage covenant is over? So it was kind of like a way to ripcord your own marriage. Then you you, know, you, cop, you cop all the shit for sure. The other person finally gets remarried and then you can remarry as well. Yeah, and you just move to another church. Oh, that's right. Totally. All right, so Anglicanism is really interesting because, as we know, under King Henry VIII, there was the whole split from Catholicism of the British church, of the English church, around the idea of divorce. So basically where we're at now in the current Anglican communion is the Church of England repealed a long-time ban in 2002 on divorced people remarrying until after the spouse's death. So in other words, you once upon a time in Anglicanism, if you divorced, you couldn't remarry until the other partner died. But in 2002, they repealed that. So this is why King Edward VIII, who married Wallace Simpson, a divorcee with a living ex-husband in 1936, could not remain king and had to abdicate. However, Prince Charles, now King Charles III, could marry Camilla because Diana died conveniently in the Paris Tunnel. So it's interesting, isn't it, that that's why we, we look at it and think, oh, why are they letting Charles remarry after having divorced? It's because Diana died. It's interesting. I had no idea about that 2002 repeal. That's, that's incredibly interesting. So what happens with those 400 years of people who did remarry? Were they, in the church's eyes, bigamists? Well, it's it's new light, brother, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, it's new light. So, you know, we just, historylessness, we just forget about that and move on. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh... No worries. So the Westminster Confession of Faith under Reformed Churches, which is a secondary standard of the Presbyterian Church, allows for divorce under certain circumstances. It states that the contract of marriage may be dissolved in the case of adultery or abandonment citing Matthew 5.31. But other than that, too bad for you. What's interesting, though, you can scroll down and have a look at what it says about Methodist churches and Baptist churches. Baptist churches tend to have a more devolved model of authority, so it really is up to each individual church. But many conservative evangelical and Protestant churches, including Baptists, pretty much oppose divorce. And quote Malachi 2.16, for I hate divorce, says Yahweh, etc., etc., and pretty much take that biblical view that we talked about before. The Assemblies of God in America, this isn't the Australian Assemblies of God, state that in view of all the available biblical evidence relating to the divorce and remarriage problems in the early church, the General Council of the Assemblies of God has adopted Interpretation 6, the description one woman man is best understood to refer to persons in a sexually faithful, heterosexual, monogamous marriage where neither partner has previously been divorced, except where the divorce occurred prior to conversion as a result of the person's spouse's sexual infidelity or because of abandonment, etc. So that's what I saw a lot of, Brian, back in the AOG. And we actually talked about this in Bible college that the AOG in Australia didn't have a hard position on this. It really depended on each individual church or parish or assembly. But pretty much if you'd been divorced before you got saved, it didn't count and you could start again. And, and I guess, you know, the waters of baptism cleanse you or your confession of faith or whatever. But after that, it started to get a bit messy. And the way that I saw it, and I've actually got a, a prime example of this as well, is if one person left or one person committed adultery, 
the other was basically free to remarry and free to continue in Christian leadership. So there was a friend of ours that was at Great Big AOG who I went to Bible college with who had a terrible first marriage, lots of fighting, lots of squabbles, and she left him. And he actually went to the then pastor of Great Big AOG and told him what had happened. And he said, yeah, that's fine. She did the leaving. In you come. And this guy actually not only remarried, but got a position in leadership at Great Big AOG. Now, the problem with that for me, even at the time, was if the marriage was that bad, do you just push and push and push until the other person just says, I can't take this anymore, and they leave, and then you get away with it, even though it might have been you that wanted the divorce and was pushing for the divorce more. It's really problematic. Use the system. Use the system. But you know what stands out to me with all of these examples is, and I know we'll get to this and unpack it a bit more, but isn't the whole reason people are meant to come to Jesus, come to Christianity, because he died on the cross. He took all your sins. Grace covers you. But then when people do stuff, when they come in, they get the fuck judged out of them. Oh, yeah, man. Because when you say the prayer or when you get baptized or when you speak in tongues, depending on which group you're in, there's a line, man. Grace up to that point and then fucking rules after that, Brian, for sure. But the thing is, even if they do say, God forgives you, like even if they did say, okay, fine, it, it's, it's cool. I had a real problem with that because I was miserable in my marriage. And for me to get away, I mean, I was faced with, do I commit suicide or do I stay in this marriage? And I chose leaving the marriage. And so my friend Paul came to me afterwards and says, oh, well, God forgives you. And I was really offended. It's like, I don't think God needs to forgive me. I think that my marriage was really bad. And this is what I was talking about before. We go back to abuse and violence and financial abuse and psychological abuse. I was open to those. But none of those were really happening in my marriage. It was just a mistake and it was fighting and it was pain and it was just consistent. And I thought to myself, I don't think God needs to forgive me for walking away from this. And my fundamentalist self, I can tell you now, is screaming out from a very little corner of the back of my mind going, see, see. But I, I didn't think that I had an excuse for my divorce. And that's why I beat myself up for the longest time. Well, there's a long history even. In Australia, I think no-fault divorce didn't come in until 1972 or 73. So there's there's a history, not just in Christianity, but also in society, that you can't actually divorce without fault. And when you've got your beliefs in a system that says the only fault is adultery, well, you're fucked, aren't you? I, I guess so. Yeah, you're I fucked. So. You're fucked, Troy, I'm telling you. You're fucked. Yeah, well, thanks for that. Appreciate that. I, I'm going to do some EMDR therapy after this session and, and undo everything that you just said to me. But but this is it, right? So I, I, I had to carry this for the longest time and I really did beat myself up. And for what it's worth, in your progressive state, it sounded like you did too. But the idea of this hardcore view on divorce is all well and good when your marriage is in a good place. But if your marriage has broken down, too bad for you. It doesn't work, Brian. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So what do people do with this? Like, What do people who are still in the fold do with this if they're listening? Fucking nothing. They just they either stay there or they leave, because you can't within the the system, particularly if it's a fundamentalist system, you can't change that. Because the thing is, if they do not have these rules, if they do not dictate the terms by which you stay married or end your marriage, then they lose that onus of control over you. They're not able to say to you these are the rules, this is what you can do, this is how you're accepted. That's why they keep these rules. I don't think, I mean, sure, there's the words of Jesus, sure, there's the words of Paul and there's all the Old Testament stuff, but socially 
they've changed the way that they deliver church services to attract more people with lights and songs and all that sort of thing. But they won't bend on these other social things which are, are driving because those social things will lose their control. Yeah, and you think about it, one of the things that high control groups are good at is being involved in your sex life and being involved in your intimate relationships and your family dynamics, right? That's how they maintain control, by speaking into the most personal, intimate parts of your existence. And this is exactly that. This is that. Spoken by the prophet Joe. No, this is exactly that, my friend, that if they let this one go, they have lost being able to reach right deep into who you are as a person and who you are as a human. And so they're not, they're not going to let that one go. They're going to tell you, we're going to say how you live your life, how you love. Yep, absolutely. And they do that well. Uh, we've spoken about this, so we don't have to go over it, but the people giving advice on your relationships, I mean, when you had those nights at youth group or whatever where they would split you off into – men and women or boys and girls and the people who were speaking to you about relationships with their their deep deep wisdom of being a 20 year old who just got married and they're speaking to you about their experience of marriage and what god thinks of it and how you should follow their example fast forward 10 12 15 years and they're getting divorced as well so and, and there's people controlling you through that messaging who fuck up later themselves oh, exactly right What's interesting, Brian, is I think that people that are still in the fundy space are going to listen to this. And let's let's not kid ourselves, they don't listen to this. But even if they did, they'd say, well, these guys are just trying to justify their own divorces. But let's make it clear, even by their own rules, you didn't do the leaving, right? So you're in the good side. I did the leaving. I'm in the bad side. And we're both saying basically the same thing because this is this ancient book this 2,000-year-old writings of this first-century apocalyptic preacher, and people are trying to apply that to the 20th and 21st centuries. I mean, it just makes no sense because Jesus wasn't from this context. And, and not just that, there's the idea that you were saying before about this idea that Adultery is sort of a, a catch-all. People are trying to interpret it that way as well. I don't know. Did you want to talk a little bit about how you sort of moved into a more progressive understanding or what you know about that from a from a progressive Christian perspective? Look, for I, I mean, I don't have a, a deep knowledge on it. I have a, a deep experience of it, I guess. And divorce wasn't seen as an issue necessarily. It wasn't seen as something that would cast you out. So within the fundamentalist space, you know, my memories of, of people getting divorced is you became a bit of a, a pariah. Like socially, you were cast out. I don't think it was obvious, but those people generally didn't have too many connections because people didn't know what to do with them. And they also, there's a lot of self-flagellation. People were just trying to constantly work through what they'd done and, oh, my God, can I be forgiven, blah, blah, blah. It was very different. And in my progressive years, lots of divorced people around, divorces happening while, while church was very live, those people did not stay in the same church because I think there's very different reasons why why people can't. It's got nothing to do with the Christianity as such. It's got to do with the fact that it's very difficult if you've <laughs> if you've divorced from someone as amicable as it may be, it's very difficult to then stay within a congregation and potentially partner with somebody else and be in that same room every week or in the same environment and friendship circles as your ex. So that, that doesn't happen. And that certainly was my experience that when my ex-wife and I did finally split, we did go our own separate ways in terms of faith. And she, she went... Well, we both started going to another church, but then I went off, tried to go back to our original church, and that was when the clanging cymbals started, and I just went, no, I just actually, this isn't for me anymore, and I can finally walk away, but people can't stay in the same environment. But in terms of their acceptance within the progressive space, 
and this is a generalisation because it's only my experience, I didn't see anybody being ostracised because they'd been divorced for whatever reason. And people didn't care as much, I, I don't think. There wasn't that stigma attached to it. I don't know in terms of belief systems. Obviously, you would have people there who were very committed to the words of Jesus and probably would consider themselves to a certain degree the red-letter Christian, so I'm not sure what they did with that either. What did they do with the words of Jesus that said, I still hate divorce? I don't know. Maybe they contextualise it and said, well, God and Jesus, they hate a lot of things, but we still do them, so forgiveness covers all. Well, there's a guy who's written an article, and I'll put it in the show notes. He wrote an article called A Theology of Divorce. His name is Robert G. Sinks. I want to make that clear. It's Sinks, not Stinks. And he argues this thing called a situationalist approach, right? That the great commandment of Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend upon the law and the prophets. And so basically what he argues is a situationalist approach. And that's basically taking Jesus' use of the great commandment, meaning that that takes precedent over everything else. And so what we should do is when we read Jesus's views on divorce, we should certainly see what he's doing to protect the woman from being cast out and from being disparaged in a first century context. But as soon as that starts to, in a modern context, come up against the idea of loving the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself, that is showing compassion and love, I guess, a la Eastern Orthodox sort of approach, then that's when we should stop and reinterpret what Jesus said, because it, it's kind of like a hierarchy of of Jesus' commandments. And the greatest is to love the, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so basically what they say is if the position of code morality is lacking in compassion or love, then obviously we're misinterpreting that. And that is pretty much a dominant view in progressive and liberal Christianity. It's interesting though, and, and it's an interesting article, so have a look at it. It's not, not a long one, but he concludes his argument by saying, you know, sometimes divorce may be little other than an escape from the intolerable. On other occasions, it may be clear and a creative movement towards fulfilment through which persons recognise that their present relationship no longer gives hope to the growing potentialities of either partner. In either case, divorce may be justifiable and a responsible act. But then he goes on to say, it's an expression of sin in the sense that the partners have failed to attain the ideal, but it's not an unforgivable act. So he's still saying it's sin. He's still saying it's wrong, but you can be forgiven for it. Yeah, and, and look, that's where I really struggled, right? Because when I was initially separating from my, my wife at the time, my good friend Paul, he was this you know church planter. We were very much zealots for the faith. He supported me because he saw how I was suffering and he saw what I was going through. But then later, when some distance was put between he and I, I was off in Korea, I rang him one day and he said to me, you know, oh, well, the divorce has happened now. God forgives all sin. And I was like, what? You saw what I went through. How can you call what I did sin? And this is where I started to really come up against this sort of Christian ideas. And for what it's worth, Brian, I think it's deeper than divorce at that point. But what I also saw was years later trying to reconnect with some of my Christian friends and some of them weren't responding. And one in particular, a mutual friend of ours, Sarah, she said to me one day, oh, I've really decided to stand with, insert my ex-wife's name, in terms of the divorce. And I thought she was actually just picking sides, but then it dawned on me, no, she sees you at fault in the divorce and she's taking the moral you know, the moral stand-up position against what you did and rejecting you as a friend because to do so is to somehow support your idea of divorce. And so I think within the church community, there are going to be people that pick sides based on a, just on, on the social dynamic of who am I going to side with, but there are others who are just going to take that, 
that AOG kind of idea that whoever does the leaving is is wrong. And so that was another thing for me that I just went, no, nah, this, this doesn't make any sense because you don't know what I suffered. You don't know what both ex-wife and I suffered, right? I don't want to sit here and say it was all her, but certainly it wasn't just me. But the other thing I guess I want to stress, and let's unpack this now from the position of two people that have ejected the faith, and I touched on this earlier, is Brian, the Bible is a human book with various conflicting views on divorce. We have certainly pulled out the hard-ass points of view today, but in the Old Testament, believe it or not, the Old Testament is more graceful than the New Testament, and harmonizing these views is problematic. But what we see is if we take away this idea of inerrancy and take away this idea of inspiration and just see it as a human book, the problems just fall away. There are different people in different contexts, in different periods of history, with different views on divorce. And that is captured in the Bible because the Bible is not divinely inspired. It's just a human book. Yet we're going to let that dictate how we live our modern life. You know, goat herders from 3,000 years ago telling us how we're to live. No, I'm just not going to do it because it's it's bullshit is what it is. You're doing a Brian and calling bullshit. I am calling bullshit because it's bullshit, Brian. But it's, uh, I mean, how many people have you heard? And I possibly would have been one of these as well if my marriage was still going. I would have been almost 30 years married now. I would have been looking back at all the carnage before me and going, huh, they're divorced, they're divorced, mm, but we're still together. We're certainly better. You and I both have Christian friends that'll be doing that right now. hundred <laughs> percent. And some are potentially listening and, and doing that right now. Who knows? Yeah, and fuck you if you are. Hey, <laughs> that's right. Judge away, people. I don't care. But it's also you, you've got to think about the you know, the different messages that came from the pulpit. What was one of those seasonal messages that would come about was Job. You know, his Job, this God heaping stuff upon him, tearing everything away, killing his kids, killing his wife, you know, getting pustules on him. and But he has to put up with it because, you know, that that's just his lot in life. And I think sometimes that can translate to people in marriages that are incredibly unhealthy and unsatisfying within that environment because you go, you just got to stick it out. And to a degree... I think that played into my mind when I was in a marriage that I I didn't know that I could not have left my ex-wife. I did not have it in me. I wish I did because it potentially would have happened sooner and there would have been a lot less pain with us. But I couldn't because for me, it was just stick it out. As I said before, that came from definitely my my family as well with mum and dad just sticking it out, being miserable. But then it was, as a Christian, sometimes things might be miserable, but you got to stick it out because Jesus will be by your side all the way through. Well, can I say, there is some truth to that in a marriage, that sometimes you do have to stick it out, right? That the other person or you or whatever, or the context is shitty. And getting through that time and coming out the other side is actually a good thing. You know, I mean, I'm in a marriage now where I could have walked away a number of times and she could have walked away a number of times and we've decided to stay. And I'm glad we did. And I know she, well, I hope she's glad that we did as well. But here we are. So in in that sense, I think there's some truth to that. But when it's irreparably damaged, when it has broken down and there there is no fixing it, I think that's when people are basically staying in a marriage where they're giving it CPR. And it's long dead. And that's just a reality. But again, Brian, coming back to this idea of letting this book speak to us, and that's why I wanted to do this episode, because I wanted to unpack this with you. I wanted to basically look at this and go, okay, I don't think I ever really have. I don't think I've ever really looked at the different views of divorce and how Christians interpret this. And interestingly enough, when I tried to do a search online, 99.9% of the stuff that I found was the fundamentalist position. Nah, cannot, cannot, cannot. And finding those 
couple of articles that we got there with different views of divorce and, uh, you know, a more progressive view of divorce was really hard to find. So imagine doing that in 1999. Now, it wouldn't have happened anyway. I wouldn't have been able to to, to undo it. So I, I carried this for the longest time. I really did. And no longer. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I resolved this a little while ago. But I wanted to make this episode for folks to say, if you're going to believe the Bible, then you have to resolve these verses. And I suggest that you go to the progressive viewpoint and have a look and see if that's going to to set you free. But if you don't believe the Bible anymore and don't believe Christianity, why pay any credence to it at all? It's just a first century, even predating that book of religious nuts from their time. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Amen, brother. Do not listen to them. I will make you unfishes of men. (laughs) Yes, put the fish back in. (laughs) Fucking put the fish back. (laughs) I know, and there's a special room in hell for me. Having said that, I get it. I get it. But look, for me, it was... Do I kill myself or do I divorce? I'm going to choose divorce and I still don't think it's sin. The end. Amen. Mm, Job could have taken that point, but he didn't, did he? No, because God was just beating him up. That's right. For his own pleasure. Mm, it's good, isn't it? It's a good story. It's always a good news story. It, it became one of those stories that just helped church reinforce their power over you, I think. Just stick with it. doesn't matter how much we abuse you. Just stick with it. Yeah, that's right. Jesus is Lord. All right, my friend. So I don't know. Did you want to throw anything else into this before we before we wrap? No, and and I I don't wrap. Just you you can do it. W R A P. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Corporate wank words. <laughs> yes. Yes. We both love a corporate wank word. Look, no, I don't want to throw anything else in except to say. Go easy on yourself, people. If you still are struggling with that, I've divorced, I've done wrong, or shit went sideways, don't know how to deal with it, just go easy on yourself. Plenty of people before you have gone through the same thing. I have, Troy has, and it's freeing to just go, the Bible, <laughs> it's a crock. So it, it really, I agree with what Troy said, don't let it speak into your life. If you don't believe it any longer, don't give it any power over you. If you do believe it, then look deeply into it also. Step outside of the of your worldview and challenge yourself and open yourself up to exploring other things and it's not evil to explore other things. Don't be controlled. Yeah, exactly. Don't be controlled by the church. Don't be controlled by an ancient book. Don't be controlled by an ancient religion. But as Brian said, if you do believe this stuff, by all means, jump into the idea of this sort of situationalist approach to divorce. I think that actually speaks quite well to it as well. Hey, Brian, if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. then come and join me. I'll save you a seat at the great barbecue in the ground. I'm okay with that because it's it's winter here in Melbourne. It's been a bit chilly lately, so I could do a bit of warming up. That'll be fine. Look, yeah, overall, if you still do believe it and you still believe the whole gospel message, then it's okay. You're freed up because isn't all of your sin forgiven? So go easy on yourself. So it's a win-win for you, isn't it? You know, pray in tongues, it all goes away. Yeah, well, I, th- I think just throw the whole thing out because it's actually garbage as the French would say. I don't think the French do say garbage. No, I don't. I don't think they say that, but it sounds good. It sounds very French. Anyway, people, feel free to explore. Feel free to forgive yourself. Feel free to just go whatever, whatever floats your boat. We've enjoyed having a bit of a chat, and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I hope you've got stuff out of it. Have a look in the show notes. Have a look at those articles. Neither of them are terribly long reads, but it it definitely does give a different viewpoint in knowing that there's not just one way or one way of thinking. Yeah, and let's open up a thread in the Facebook group and let's have a bit of a chat and discussion about this because I think it's something that really matters to a lot of people. What is it? Half the marriages in Australia end in divorce, so... 
you know, at least 50% of the people in our group are in this boat. Yeah, I think I think we took the mantle from the states. They were they were up there amongst the highest for quite a while, but um, we're high achievers here in Australia, and we we definitely have have taken that on. All right, my friend. Well, I'll see you in a two weeks time. Two weeks, fourteen nights. Fourteen nights. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes.